0: everyone. Welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a fine show for you this week. We're going to talk about a new documentary about Kurt Vonnegut which is just out now, and we're also going to have a review of the new Ghostbusters sequel, Ghostbusters Afterlife. But first, we're going to talk to Raymond Cummings, Book and Film Globe book critic, about the new Dave Eggers novel, The Every. And we're going to lead off this week with The Temptations, singing You're My Everything. It's kind of a thin connection, but it has got the word every in it. So enjoy The Temptations, and then we'll be right back to talk about my longtime nemesis, Dave Eggers. So I have a complicated relationship with the writer Dave Eggers, to say the least. Uh, I was an original contributor to uh, McSweeney's magazine, which he founded, and also to the McSweeney's website. And Eggers published my first book. Neil Anthology of American Literature, which I wrote under a sort of a pseudonym. And so people thought I was him for a while. There were rumors were flying all over the internet, the early internet, that I was, in fact, Dave Eggers, that I wasn't a real person. And it took me some time to prove that I was actually real. And then, uh, I don't know, Dave and I had a bit of a parting of the ways. I had slightly different opinions about the way McSweeney should go than he did. And, and so we parted ways, and I have gone on to do what I do, and he's gone on to become... I would say, you know, one of the leading American literary voices of his generation, as was prophesied. And so no one can doubt Dave Eggers' immense talent. And he has a new novel out. It's called The Every. And Raymond Cummings reviewed it this week. And and Ray um, is the author of books including Assembling the Lord, Crucial Sprawl, Open for Business, Notes on Idol, and Vigilante Fluxus. He's written for *Spin*. The Wire magazine, The Village Voice, Splice today and the Baltimore City paper. World Without End, his latest collection of poetry, was independently published in January 2020. And, of course, he writes your book and film, Globe. Raymond, hello. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good. How are you doing, Neil?
0: Oh, I'm doing fine. I enjoyed your review of The Every by Dave Eggers, uh, which you really liked, and a lot of people seem to really like. I was like, oh, my God, here he goes again. Here goes Eggers again, being amazing. But uh, there's nothing I can do about it. So um, tell us a little bit about this book. It's a sequel to his hit novel from 2013, The Circle, right?
1: Right. I think it's set about 10 years later, but it might be a little later than that. Kind of taking us to the next level where The Circle was a company that was kind of Google, Facebook, a couple of other large tech behemoths merged together into one large company. Now it's kind of gone on and it's taken on uh, an Amazon-like company and it's rebranded itself, and it is calling itself The Every. And the protagonist of the circle, Mae Holland, is now, you know, she's not a bright-eyed 20-something anymore. Now she is the CEO of the Every, and she doesn't really have a sense of where her company is going beyond just gobbling up other companies. And now we're introducing a new protagonist for this new novel, who's Delaney Wells, who is a former forest ranger who has the idea of joining the every to destroy it from the inside. That's the capsule plot.
0: So that is sort of like terrorism from inside. And she actually goes to work for the company in order to destroy it because the every is like, like an Uber Amazon that controls every facet of our life, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, in back in the, in the circle, you you could
0: already see it starting to take over the
1: world, take over America, and things have kind of progressed further since then. And it's just, it's unbeatable, essentially. If you're a politician and you want to try to shame this company or attack or something, they find ways to bring
0: you to heel, so to speak. Uh, they're the real power. They're the real power.
1: And it's sort
0: of like Amazon.
1: Yeah, yeah, sort of this review that i wrote i think it was like 750 words or something but after i wrote it and turned it in i was and thinking about it um i read this book twice before i wrote that review i like to just make sure i have a real thorough feeling for a book before i write a review And I was thinking about my review and I was thinking, you know, there's so much I didn't say, which is a good thing because you want the reader to discover things for themselves. But there's just so much detail. I mean, this is a much better book than The Circle. The Circle was a very good book, but this is at a different level of depth. When when you reread it, there's a lot of stuff you catch and you're like, oh, gosh. It's
0: 577 pages long. So this is like a real epic, right? Yeah, It takes
1: a long time to read, and there's just a lot of little metaphors sprinkled in about what's going on, and I don't know if I even caught it the first time. The protagonist's friend has a dog, and the dog goes through some things, and you realize the dog is a metaphor for what the every is doing to the human spirit is just one example.
0: You know, Eggers is an interesting case because, I mean, this this guy has been an, the absolute standard bearer of independent bookstores and independent publishing on a big level, but still independent since his career started. He's all, you know, McSweeney's does its own thing, and he really has been, was a huge backer of independent bookstores. And back when he published my book, I did a big tour of only independents, you know. I've, I've moved away from that to some extent. I've even I even published a few books with Amazon, but like he, you know, he really has an old school anti corporate stance in his politics. I think that's I, I would say that's his that's his big thing. You would agree with that, right? Yeah, I would. Not anti-capitalist necessarily. I don't think that's where he stands. I mean, I think he's, you know, he's fine with like, he likes independent businesses and entrepreneurs. And a lot of the, even in his non-fiction books, a lot of his heroes, like in The Monk of Mocha or Zaytun, these are entrepreneurial types, right? These are, you know, independent people who are doing independent things. And he, he I think, is very concerned that that's not as possible in this world as it used to be.
1: It's the desire, I think, to not, be controlled or to not have any edges kind of sanded off. You know, he wants to be himself. And I think sometimes when you're under the wing of, of larger forces, it can either directly or indirectly change how you are or how you present yourself.
0: I mean, we're always under the wing of larger forces. We live in a country with a government. We live in states with government. There's always some force bearing down on us, but I think that doesn't tend to be where his focus lies. He tends to worry about corporations in particular, which go, uh, you know, Amazon does not just, uh, its borders don't end uh, at the Pacific Ocean, at the Atlantic Ocean of the United States. You know, it goes goes in all directions. It's all over the world, right? And does the every in the book also have a global scope?
1: They're all over the world. I I get the sense that there are certain countries that are fighting it in the world of this book. Like, I feel like maybe Russia and China and the EU are fighting it. But for all intents and purposes, the every is one in that world. And the circle kind of has been attacked by, by some as being like too much of an exaggeration not understanding how the internet works, et cetera. But I think, you know, it's a metaphor. You read these books and you, you look at all the things that the protagonists have to do to maintain their standing. And you think, this is absolutely ludicrous. How would someone keep up with all these platforms and respond to all these messages and acknowledge people uh, without going completely insane? And I don't think real life is like that, but real life is kind of like that. <laughs> Just being on facebook i'm sure I'm sure you neil as a, as, as someone who's a fairly well known person and in the position that you're in, you probably get a lot of attention from people you don't even know
0: oh Facebook is a nightmare for me i mean I've spent the last two years arguing with people I don't even know about COVID policy. I'm like, stop yelling at me. I'm sorry. you know. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're scared. That's fine. Or I find myself getting in arguments about movies. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care what your opinion is. So, um, you know, I think with Eggers as a writer, he likes to write fables, right? I would compare him in a lot of ways to Kurt Vonnegut. His work has a, a lot of similarities. A little bit of Kafka going on there, too. You know, he he's able to sort of, like, create these worlds that are kind of like the world we live in, but aren't exactly, you know? And I think he's just, he's a very, he's very skilled. He is particularly in these books. I, I
1: just find, I find his tone really effective for this. And in the every, I feel like he's, I don't like to use the word editorializing because it can be a dirty word for some people, but there are some points in the book where you just feel him pull away from his characters and basically look into the audience and, and say, Here's kind of a wider uh, view in the world of this crazy app, because one of the plots is that Delaney and her friend are basically creating the worst possible ideas for the every thinking, well, the every will do this and the world will be horrified and will revolt and push back. And then that doesn't happen. The company just gets more powerful.
0: And that happens in real life, too. When Facebook announced that it was changing its name to Meta and moving into the metaverse, everyone was like, oh, my God, no one. That's never going to happen. And, you know, five years from now, we're all going to be living in the, in the freaking metaverse. And people will for, people forget the name Meta. You know, I was talking to my
1: mom about this when when it was announced. I think we were watching the news and my mom said, well, don't you think that's silly? I mean, isn't that just a transparent way for them to try to clean up their image? And I said, they're still going to call the site Facebook. The company's just going to be meta. And I guarantee you people will forgotten this in three months.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, I haven't read The Every yet, and I can read about Dave Eggers. I have a hard time actually reading Dave Eggers just because of my personal history. You know, I know the guy. Like, I went to his wedding. I know what he's up to. I think he's going to definitely touch a nerve with people because there's a lot of people across the ideological spectrum, left and right, who are very concerned about Amazon and Facebook and how they're taking over the world. Yeah, people have their issues with Eggers, but I think this is a book
1: that people should read. Because he's he's not just dealing with the idea of a kind of a tech overhang over everything and, and reaching into our lives, but he's also dealing with some issues of, for lack of a better word, oversensitivity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The Every is kind of trying to deal with that and trying to turn everybody into very mannered, best versions of themselves in a way that's really insidious. And you kind of can feel uh, Delaney, the, the main character, So she's been planning to do this for years, to institute this scheme. And so she's doing all this preparation, doing all these things within the every as a customer to prepare herself to be an infiltrator. And she gets the job, she gets on the campus, and you can just feel her having to keep from really fully being herself, being very wary. It's a very, very sort of, you know, we can't say what we think, or we have to speak in code, or we have to meet eyes. Because we can't say these things because someone's listening. Someone's recording all of this. And these are
0: concerns. These are, you know, when they talk talk about cancel culture, they're not talking about anything in particular. They're talking about the idea that you cannot say what you think and what you feel because it might offend someone about anything.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I have various feelings about that phrase, but there's definitely an element where it can be pushed way too far and like I said, this book is kind of an exaggeration and a satire, but it's just, I think it's asking you to think about it.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, listen, that, it sound, it's a very provocative review. It sounds like a very provocative book. And it is great to have you back in the pages of Book and Film Globe uh, again. It's been a while. So let's, uh, let's not wait so long between now and the next review. I promise we won't. All right. Raymond Cummings wrote a review of Dave Eggers, The Every, and it's up on Book and Film Globe right now. Raymond, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you very much, Neil. Moving on from Dave Eggers, some people have compared Dave Eggers to Kurt Vonnegut, saying that he's his generation's version of Kurt Vonnegut, but there can only really be one Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut is back in the conversation. There's a new documentary, a groundbreaking new documentary about Kurt Vonnegut, and Anne Holliday, our uh, frequent contributor, got to go to the premiere of this documentary in, in New York recently. Hello, how are you?
3: Hi, I'm good, Neil. How are you?
0: Good. And you uh, you gave this documentary, I would say, a fairly glowing review on the site this week.
3: Oh, absolutely. I really I I really loved it. I think um, I might have had my ear bent a little by my companion who really disliked uh, the amount that one of the directors, Bob Wide, inserted himself into the documentary. Although I think he seemed as if he had done so with some reluctance at the urging of a co-director who came on board like 20 years into the making of this film and was like, you got to finish this thing. And I know how.
0: Yeah. So there's some backstory to this. So uh, Robert Wide, who is who is one of the directors, contacted Kurt Vonnegut a long time ago, obviously, while Vonnegut was still alive, uh, saying that he was a fan and, and, and wanted to film him. Right. Isn't that how, isn't that how it went? Right.
3: I mean, he was a pretty weedy young thing. He had already directed a documentary that was aired on PBS about the Marx Brothers and of certainly predates email and cell phones where you can call anywhere in the country and it's the same price. So he wrote him a letter and didn't hear back. And then Kurt Vonnegut came back from his summer vacation and received the letter and said, oh, you know, I actually saw that Marx Brothers documentary. And yeah, you can film me, but I don't really have any supporting materials that you could use in your documentary. And um, 33 years later, the film finally came out and it it allowed uh, the director to tap into all of these resources and become friends with the family, which becomes a really important part of the documentary. He just had incredible access and Kurt Vonnegut's children spoke really frankly and, you know, with a sense of fun that you, you know, candidly speaking with a friend, which is what he became to that family.
0: So there's some archival footage of Vonnegut. There's, there's plenty of uh, footage of him talking and doing his thing, doing readings and whatnot.
3: Yeah. And I mean, so much of that is all over the internet. If you do a search for Kurt Vonnegut commencement addresses or, you know, he gave so many speeches right up until the end of his life. He was so active in anti-war movement and so big of a presence speaking to college students in particular that there's, there's no shortage of footage. But Because of the access to the family, there's just some incredible home movies of him as a little boy frolicking around Lake Max and Cucky, which is this lake about an hour north of Indianapolis, where a lot of people from Indianapolis will go for weekends or, you know, if they're lucky enough to have a family home there. And Vonnegut had this big Indianapolis family with lots of aunts and uncles and cousins that he was really close to, and they used to go there all the time.
0: Well, right. And you uh, laid claim to this documentary. I had a couple of people wanted to write about it, myself included, but you laid claim to it because you yourself are a Hoosier. Yes. And, and you felt this personal connection to Vonnegut. In I, that
3: I always have. Yeah. Since I discovered him at 15 and I, that doesn't make me special. I think most people who really, really love Kurt Vonnegut discover him at 15. Um, yeah. But it, not only am I a Hoosier, but I'm a Hoosyorker, Yorker, as he was, ended up living in New York. And my husband is from Cape Cod and uh, Kurt Vonnegut famously moved his family to Cape Cod and was working at the Saab dealership in Orleans, which is the next town over from, from my husband's childhood home. So, you know, I just feel like, oh, I'm always marching in step with Kurt Vonnegut. So I had to trounce the competition, all the people who wanted to write about it. I'm the victor.
0: Yeah, you had to, you had to take them down. You had to plant the Indiana state flag there. So I'm going to plant that. Yeah, there's not a lot of there's not there aren't a ton of, of points of Indiana pride. I guess you could you could claim like Paul porter, some, Cole porter, Peyton Manning. I don't know. uh um, <laughs> Depends on what your orientation is. Um so the movie um does it I mean it does it discuss Vonnegut's literary legacy at all, or is it is it mostly a like a, a family?
3: Oh no. Drama it, I mean it comedy? really the ripples just go out in every possible direction. And they do uh, They do talk about his literary legacy. There are a lot of critics that are interviewed or uh, biographers. And, you know, they talk about particularly Slaughterhouse-Five. But, you know, we've all seen pictures of people with Vonnegut tattoos. I actually wrote an article about Kurt Vonnegut tattoos one time. And so, you know, there are certain things. So, so it goes. And uh, remember this, Babies Be Kind from from... from uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater. So they really like if you're a Vonnegut fan, you're going to hear all your favorite books checked off. You're going to hear a lot of material that you already know. But then there's also going to be all these delicious little morsels that you haven't heard.
0: Right. And, you know, Vonnegut's work, obviously, like, it's very, um, especially his his most famous novels, let's say Slaughterhouse-Five, Breakfast of Champions, they're very 1970s, right? There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's echoes of World War II. There's a lot of sort of anxiety about the Nixon era and about Vietnam and about all the problems of the 1970s. But I, I just, I still feel like the what he says and the way he says it remains relevant. And there's a reason why, you know, a lot of writers fade away, but people are still reading Kurt Vonnegut.
3: Yeah. And he's so funny and his writing is so economical, um, and, you know, it's just a really clear, direct punch in his writing. And a lot of what he says, it's just so tart. It's so funny. It's so mean. But within a context of secular humanism, I mean, I think he really loved humanity and probably was an easier person to be around with in terms of general humanity than at times his own family. But he speaks at length in the film about the decision to be funny. And that he was funny. That his beloved older sister Alice, who when she died of cancer, and tragically her husband died two days earlier in an accident, Kurt Vonnegut took in their four children. So you know, I mean, he he had all these hardships in his life, and Allie was funny. He was funny. He was the beloved littlest of his nuclear family, and was basically raised by his older sister. I think the parents were a little bit chilly, but he had this wonderful, warm, playful relationship with this funny person and they would amuse each other. And, you know, I think of his book Slapstick, which was the first one I read. And you have these kind of monstrous twins in it who are so keyed into each other and so incredibly intelligent and so funny. And everybody else, the parents are ashamed of them. You know, they're there for each other. And I feel like maybe that was his relationship with Alice.
0: Right. All right. Well, Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time is out now. It is available, I believe. You'll be able to find it in some art houses and it also will be available to stream. And, you know, it's for the Kurt Vonnegut completeness. And also, I think it's a good introduction to Vonnegut. Absolutely.
3: I mean, even if you've only read one book, you know, check it out and, and learn more about him, I think. I think it will make Vonnegut fans.
0: Well, you can never have too many Kurt Vonnegut fans. Thank you so much for writing the piece and for talking to me about Kurt Vonnegut today. My pleasure. Yet another long-delayed blockbuster has appeared on our screens this weekend. Ghostbusters Afterlife has finally shown up, and Stephen Garrett made his way through Ghostbusters Afterlife and wrote a review of it on the site this week. Hello, Stephen. Hello. So... This is the official sequel, the Ghostbusters. I don't know if anyone's waiting for it, but it's not. Uh, it has nothing to do continuity-wise with the Paul Feig all-lady Ghostbuster reboot of 2016. Yes, they're ghosting that movie. Hey, Hey. <laughs> now, you know, I actually, like, I-, I found myself in the minority. Like, there was a lot of hate for that movie, and I actually found it kind of funny. I felt like it actually, uh, you know, with with Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy, I don't remember who the other. Oh, and what Kate McKinnon. I felt like it was kind of trying to play in the spirit of the original Ghostbusters, which, as you put in the review, was really just kind of a buddy, you know, a comedy about like famous comedians hanging out and cracking wise about stupid special effects. Yeah, and exactly. At its core, it was a showcase for Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd to be goofy. Right, right. And for Harold Ramis to
2: basically kind of be brilliantly wry, you know, and just kind of like very goofy in a very down low way, which is kind of fantastic.
0: Right. Whereas this Ghostbusters afterlife, as you point out in your review, is sort of like uh, taking the general vibe of the original Ghostbusters, but grafting it on to, to basically Stranger Things.
2: It's basically Stranger Things. Yeah, I think that's a good comp fundamentally. And it's a it doesn't know what it is. It's, is this a coming of age movie? Is this like, a, you know, autumn romance thing between Carrie Coon and Paul Rudd? Is it I means all these things? And it's none of these things. You know, most of all, it is not a movie starring big name comedians who are going to make you laugh your ass off because they're making jokes about stupid sci fi ghosts.
0: Yeah, it stars a bunch of basically like anonymous teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Totally
2: competent, you know, very talented in their own way, but sure. not high wattage people, not, not marquee names.
0: Right. So and, and you know, then Paul Rudd is, is the biggest marquee name with, with more than, you know, 10 lines in this thing. But, you know, he's a supporting character. He's a supporting character and frankly and he's a
2: he's a genial presence. Everybody loves Paul Rudd. He's the sexiest man alive, apparently. But he's very self-effacing. And I think he does better when he's in a on like if you think of Anchorman, like he's not the main goofy guy. He's a supporting goofy guy. And he's great as a supporting goofy guy who's kind of lovable and and cute. You know, they're innocuous. They're innocuous. He does no damage and he's there to help.
0: But imagine if they if they had rebooted Ghostbusters and recast it with like Paul Rudd, Zach uh, Will Ferrell. I don't know. I, I you know you could you could, <laughs> you, you, you could you could go. There's you know JB Smoove. I don't know. You could right. you could cast it across the board and create a hilarious uh movie. E- even Seth Rogen, you know, who I'm not a big fan of these days, but it's like you know he would have made sense. In the new yep. Ghostbusters, right? To have him cracking wise and being afraid or whatever of the, the gang from that movie where they all they bring hell to the world, you know? Why right. not? Why right. Not? This is the end. That's right. Exactly. There's lots of combos. You know, whatever uh, Ken Jong, You know, there's so many people you could put in a Ghostbusters uniform and make a funny movie.
2: They clearly decided not to make it a funny movie. You know, it's like I don't want to say they were compromised, but there were too many people wanting to honor the original film and the original material, and whenever you. Try to honor something, you're not being irreverent about it. And so you're not going to be as funny as you could be. Right, so this so- becomes this weird coming of age drama, romance, action, comedy everything and nothing, you know?
0: Right. So reverence toward Ghostbusters just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, Ghost exactly. Busters, Ghostbusters itself was kind of a middle finger movie, you know, sort of in, in the spirit of the, you know, classic National Lampoon, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be something to be honored. Like the the tech and the, you know, and the, it's not a, um, it's not some sort of cultural touchstone that we need to bow down to.
2: Exactly. I mean, whenever these guys pulled out their gadgets, the joke was that they were gadgets. Like, what the hell is a paranormal sensor or a plasma pack or whatever the hell it is? Proton pack. I mean, they're all they're they're ridiculous inherently. And so in this movie, of course, they're lovingly photographed and reverently presented and in a very fetishistic way. as though to say, like, yeah, this is why we like Ghostbusters. And you're like, no, that's not why we like Ghostbusters. We liked it because of these funny guys who were making fun of all
0: this stuff. Because Bustin doesn't actually make us feel good.
2: No, Bustin. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as this movie would like to make us think. So we end up with a movie that it's a loving tribute to an irreverent film that inherently, like you're saying, is a middle finger to loving tributes, et cetera. You know, that said... I, you know, how can you not love Dan Aykroyd? How can you not love Bill Murray? These guys end up, you know, popping up and you love seeing them. And Harold Ramis, the weirdest thing, it it makes me delighted and also dread the future. But they basically revived a dead man and created a three dimensional version of him that seems absolutely realistic. So uh, Harold Ramis, spoiler alert, pops up at the end as a ghost and they've digitally recreated him based on images and photos, et cetera, you know, footage from the previous movies. And it is eerie. I mean, it's appropriate that it's eerie for a Ghostbusters film, but I think what's weird about that is also Harold Ramis aged in a very different way. He kind of got fat and happy, and he he filled out a bit and didn't quite look like he did exactly in 1984. This ghost looks like that dude aged perfectly, but still in perfect physical condition. <laughs> It looks like an old Egon. Kind of like how I'm aging. Yeah, exactly. I wish we could all age this beautifully. Um, yeah. But it's this idealized older version of Harold Ramis, which is eerie and hilarious and lovely and also completely not the reality of how he ended up as an older person. So
0: Sounds like a sweet. perfect metaphor. It sounds like a perfect metaphor for this movie, which is uh, yeah. you know an idealized older version of Ghostbusters that yeah. doesn't actually capture the vibe of what it was like.
2: It's, dude, I'm sure you're going to catch it at some point and you're going to say, oh, that was sweet, you know, and then you're going to forget it a moment later. It does no harm except in the sense of, you know, look, it begs the question, what are sequels supposed to do anyway? You know, why are we retelling the story? We're not continuing the story in any, you know, significant way. It's a victory lap. It's, the, you know, and it's a last hurrah and it's great seeing these guys get together again and they seem to be having a fun time and isn't that lovely? It's like a, a class reunion. And of course the stay Puft Marshmallow man uh, plays prominently. Weirdly, yes. And it's lovely to see him but also why are we seeing him?
0: People care so. even less about him than they did in 1983 or 04 or whatever it goes. Yeah. It's yeah. weird. It's a, it's a weird vibe movie, uh but it'll give you all the feels if you're a big Die Hard fan. All right. Ghostbusters Afterlife on screens now. Stephen Garrett, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. If there's something strange in your neighborhood. Gonna call?
1: Ghostbusters! If it's something weird and it don't look
0: good who
1: you gonna call Ghostbusters!
0: all right thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Ghostbusters afterlife out in theaters now also thanks to Anne Halliday for talking to me about the new Kurt Vonnegut documentary and to Raymond Cummings for discussing and listening to my rant about Dave Eggers and his new novel the every my name is neil pollack i am the editor-in-chief of book and film globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com please keep reading the site please keep listening to the show we sure appreciate it happy thanksgiving to you and your family stay safe have fun remember reviewing makes you feel good are you gonna call book and film globe talk to you soon I'm afraid of no ghost.